Please open your Bible to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Another thing we should not take for granted is the gift we have in being able to open this book together. There is no book, no book like this book. For only this book contains the very words of God spoken by God. Words with authority to judge and power to bring life. There's no book like this book. It was uh, composed over about 1,500 years, written by around 40 different authors, made up of 66 smaller books, all put into one book that tells one story. There's no book like this book. And one of the, the mind-bending aspects of the Bible is that while all of these books tell one story because they have one author, God himself, the particular authors of each book, they had specific reason, reasons for writing. They were writing not just to this ambiguous, amorphous blob of people in general. They were writing to faces, a particular audience in a particular time, in a particular culture. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, or more, and these books, this book, still speaks to us today. It has something to say about how we are to live our lives in this world filled with iPhones and IRAs of Bluey and Taylor Swift. There really is no book like this book. God has something to say to us today and every day through this book. And this morning we continue our series in the book of Matthew. And one of the things that I love about expository preaching, which is just preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, which is what we do here, is how you're able to get to know an author and his audience over time. And then also how you're able to get a better glimpse of, of just the unrivaled wisdom of God, the creativity of God. God could have just given us a manual, but this book is no mere manual. It tells stories and it, it puts on display wisdom and glory. So Matthew was written by Matthew surprise. Not a surprise. Matthew was written by Matthew, a, a tax collector and one of Jesus' disciples. And it was written sometime around 60 AD, which is about 30 years after Jesus' earthly ministry, after his death and resurrection. And Matthew was writing to the church, to followers of Jesus Christ, who mostly came from a Jewish background. And this is one of the most important things that, that we should understand about Matthew as we read much more than the other Gospels, Matthew purposed to show that, that Jesus, rather than being something new and detached from all that had come before, Jesus was the fulfillment of all that preceded him. Matthew was writing to tell his Jewish readers that, that all these stories you've been telling yourself, all of your religious practices, all of the law, all of it leads here to Jesus. So, so Matthew sees himself as this, this scribe, and some I talked about uh, probably two years ago now, which you probably all remember, Matthew 13, 52, it's, it's this verse that takes place right kind of in the middle of Matthew, and Matthew says, Matthew records Jesus saying, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. One of the things that's just remarkable about Matthew is this is what Matthew does. He's bringing out of his treasure, what is new and what is old. He's bringing out the old in order to show the greatness of the new. And so all throughout Matthew, from beginning to end, the Old Testament is everywhere. 
So Matthew, he, he wants to show that Jesus is a continuation of, of all that has come before. And so he starts, Matthew, with a genealogy, right? He, he starts by saying that Jesus, where did Jesus come from? Well, he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the promised one. He is the Messiah. So Matthew opens with this, this birth story showing that, that Jesus indeed is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that have come before. But not just that, Matthew also wants to show, not only is Jesus son of David, son of Abraham, he's the new Moses. And so Matthew records how Jesus was taken up out of Egypt. He fled to Egypt to be safe, and then he was, came out of Egypt. It's also uh, in, in Matthew 5, one of the most uh, well-known parts of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes and sits and teaches on top of this mountain. Mountains are kind of a big deal in the Bible. And one of the most important mountains is Mount Sinai. And there Moses received God's law to give to God's people. And here you have Jesus sitting on this mount, teaching God's law to God's people. This is what life in his kingdom looks like. So Jesus is the new and better Moses. But that's not all that we see. There's, there's much, much more. And just one, one interesting thing, and I think is, is helpful to recognize as we kind of step back and get this bigger view of Matthew as a whole, Matthew's broken up into really, it's got the introduction and conclusion, and then it's got five sections in between that. There's five sections of, of Jesus' teaching. And why would it matter? Why would Matthew care about five sections? Well, there's purpose in this too. Because five blocks of teaching was a really big deal to the people of Israel. Because that's what Moses had given them. He gave them the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these five books of the Bible. That was the, the law of God given to God's people, revealing God and his purpose for his people to them. And so Matthew, in a similar way, wants to structure his book to reflect this same reality. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that has come before. Jesus is it. And we come to this fifth section, this fifth and final section of Matthew, in Matthew 21. And in Matthew 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And he enters and he's hailed as the long-awaited Messiah, if you remember. People fill the streets going before him and following after him, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem... The, the one the Jews have been looking for, they've been expecting, he goes to the temple. Now the temple was this, this symbol of significance for the people of Israel. Because the temple represented who they were as the chosen people of God. The temple was preceded by the tabernacle. And this was the meeting place between God and man. And so the temple now, here it stood in all its beauty and majesty, as this statement of, of importance for the Jewish people, of significance. They really mattered because this building was there. And Jesus comes, and if you remember as we went through Matthew 21, 22, and 23, Jesus comes and challenges the authority of the temple leaders. He challenges the legitimacy of all that is taking place in the temple. And he condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, for their waywardness. He tells them that judgment will come upon them. Look at uh, verses, chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus says this, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, 
And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then Jesus laments over the city in verse 37. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here is telling these teachers of the law, these, these keepers of the temple, that judgment is coming. And he echoes the words of Jeremiah 12.7 and Jeremiah 22.5 where, where God says that he has forsaken his house. God declares that because of disobedience, his house shall become a desolation. And then Jesus leaves the temple. Now I think uh, before we dive into our text here, I think Larry would have uh, wanted you to know that this is one of the more difficult texts in the Bible. He said that about a few texts, but this one really is. The reason for this difficulty is because, as one commentator said, few chapters of the Bible have elicited more disagreement among interpreters than this one. And while Larry loved his commentaries, and he definitely did, he didn't so much love when they disagreed with one another. But by God's grace, we'll be all right together this morning. And if you have any questions about the text afterward, feel free to direct them to uh, Caleb Loftness or any of the middle school and high school students that were with me last night as we discussed this text together. And I'm sure they'd be happy to help you out. So with that said, uh, let's, um, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this text, make some comments as we go, and then I want to uh, get into one, one implication for us. So look at Matthew 24, 1, just this first verse. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Let's hold right there. And I need some water. So if someone could grab me some, that would be great. So Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now this, this kind of seems strange. Jesus has spoken of this coming judgment. Thank you. Jesus has spoken of this coming judgment. And then they, he leaves the temple and the disciples are, I mean, looking around and saying, hey, Jesus, look. Like, what's the deal? Mark actually gives us a little bit more detail. In Mark 13, 1, he says that as Jesus left the temple, one of the disciples said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. It's like, what? Like, where does this come from? Well, think about the significance of this temple in, in Jewish identity and in Jewish life. It was a mar- remarkable building. And Jesus is here just bending their minds with ha- what he is saying is going to happen to this building. So it's like they're sitting there and they hear that this, this house is going to become desolate and they're walking out and they're looking at these stones and, and it was recorded. If you, you can go there now and you can see on, the, on the, uh, the wailing wall, you'll see stones that are about five meters wide. Massive stones. 
That's just the substructure of the temple. What was there before is not there anymore. And it's recorded that there, the stones were up to 12 meters wide. Massive stones making up this structure. It was a remarkable building. And so the disciples are thinking, Jesus surely can't be really talking about this amazing building. So look, what an incredible place. It was unimaginable for the disciples that this structure would ever be abandoned. Surely Jesus couldn't be saying that. Look then at verse 2. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now Jesus makes more explicit the coming judgment on Jerusalem. He wants his disciples to know what to expect, what is to come. And in prophesying this destruction, Jesus really isn't saying anything new. Even though the disciples and all who would have heard it would have been shocked when Jesus said these things, it wasn't anything different than what's already included in the Old Testament. Listen to what the Lord says to Solomon in 1 Kings 9. Solomon, the one who originally built the temple. The Lord tells him, this is 1 Kings 9, 6 through 9. If you turn aside from following my commands, then this house will become a heap of ruins. In verse 8, he says, everyone passing by it will hiss and they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. You can see similar, similar prophecies in Micah and in Jeremiah where it's prophesied that the temple will become this heap of ruins. This is what God has been saying from the beginning. And the disciples knew this. The le- temple leaders knew it. But they really do what we so often do. They saw themselves as the exception. Like, surely we're fine. Like, this can't be talking about us. And we do this. We do this far too often. So we put our hope in other things, and we think, yeah, it can't be that bad. I mean, it's working out fine for my neighbor. So let me pursue the same things. Perhaps more stuff will make me happier. Perhaps it's right for me just to pursue happiness. Perhaps this relationship will lead to my joy. Or maybe just more money or more security or better health or, or more, more power or better status at work. We pursue all of these things and think, eh, it'll be fine. For Israel, they hoped in a place, in a past promise, but they had abandoned the call to be faithful, to not run after other gods. And so judgment will come. And for all those who run after other gods, judgment is coming. And then when we come to verse 3, Matthew records something subtle but remarkable. Jesus has gone out of the temple. He's gone out and he is headed east. And we know that because of how verse 3 starts. Look at the beginning. Beginning of verse 3, he says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciple came to him. Now, the Mount of Olives is, is explicitly mentioned in the Old Testament two other times. Twice in the Old Testament. First, it's mentioned in 2 Samuel 15.30. In the midst of the conspiracy of David's son Absalom, David tragically must flee Jerusalem. You might remember this story. And verse 30 describes how David, the deliverer of Israel the king after God's own heart, 
how he went up to the, to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. That's what David leaves Jerusalem, the city of the king, weeping as he goes up the Mount of Olives. It's a tragic point in the history of Israel, one that Matthew's readers and the disciples would have known well. And here Jesus has just wept over Jerusalem. He's left the temple, and now he's ascended on the Mount of Olives. The other instance that the Mount of Olives occurs in the Old Testament is in Zechariah 14. And this chapter prophesies the coming day of the Lord and the judgment that is to come against Jerusalem. And verse 4 says that on that day the Lord's feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. We could also read about in Ezekiel 8 and 10, while the Mount of Olives isn't mentioned, it talks about the glory of the Lord departing the temple, departing the city of Jerusalem and moving east and bringing judgment on Jerusalem. Jesus is demonstrating and Matthew is implying that that, this glory indeed has departed. It's left the temple. It's left Jerusalem. And I I mention all of this because I, I want us to get a sense of how much of the Old Testament is in Matthew. How much of what Jesus says is him just breathing out Scripture. And now that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, the disciples come to him with a question, the question that's burning in their minds. When will this happen? Now Jesus is making it abundantly clear that something is going to happen. When will this happen? So look again at verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They come to Jesus with these questions which in their mind are all about one thing, the coming day of the Lord, like Zechariah 14 talks about. They knew these prophecies. Unlike us, they actually read the prophetic letters, I mean, the prophetic books of the Old Testament often. We tend to neglect those books, thinking like, I don't know what's going on. But no, they knew these books well. They knew about this coming day of the Lord. They knew about the judgment. And so in Zechariah 14, Verse 9, I mentioned verse 4 about the Mount of Olives. Verse 9 says that the Lord on this day will be king over all the earth. It will be a day of plenty and prosperity. And it first starts by talking about Jerusalem's destruction. And then after that, in verse 11, it, it talks about Jerusalem's restoration. It says that Jerusalem will again be inhabited on that day, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So they knew about this this prophesied destruction, but they also knew of the hope that came after that. So they're wondering, all right, Jesus is talking about this destruction. All right, when's it going to happen? When is the end of the age? When is this day coming? And then Jesus answers them in this long block of teaching that begins in verse 4, goes all the way to the end of chapter 25. And, I mean, we'll probably be done at about like 2.30. Is that okay? (laughs) We're just going to look to uh, verse 35 this morning. But I want us to begin by looking at Jesus' answer, beginning in verse 4. We're going to read to verse 14 right now. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. 
All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my, name, for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. There's just a little bit there. Jesus answers his disciples. They're, they're asking, all right, when is this moment? They've got one moment in mind. Destruction of Jerusalem, restoration of Jerusalem, coming day of the Lord. The king will reign over all the earth. This is the day they're waiting for. And Jesus answers by telling them that, that troubles and afflictions are going to come first. And he goes on to describe them. And then in verse 8, he says, what you see is just the beginning of the birth pains. They're the start of something, but only the start. Ultimately, what they will bring is incomparably wonderful, but painful days do lie ahead. But Jesus' point is not, not only to say that affliction is coming. His, he wants to equip his disciples in how to respond when these troubles come. And so look at the exhortations and commands Jesus gives. In verse, verse 4, he starts with, See that no one leads you astray. In verse 6, he says, See that you are not alarmed. In verse 32, it's this exhortation to endure to the end. Jesus' point is less concerned with what is to come and more about how to respond when it comes. The disciples want to know when and how this destruction will take place. And Jesus says there are a lot of things that are going to happen. Great trouble is going to come. But do not be deceived. Do not fear. Trust in me and persevere. So Jesus answers their question by introducing this, this, this period of time of trouble and affliction that the disciples will be a part of. And it's a, a period of trouble that I think we're still a part of today. Because what they experienced was just the beginning of the birth pains. But then Jesus turns more specifically to what is to take place for the disciples. And we come to verse 15. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is high on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as it has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Now here Jesus is specifically prophesying. He's speaking of the, the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And it's, it's filled with... Uh, images that come from Daniel, and much of this chapter is as well. The prophet Daniel spoke of it, and, and so here Jesus speaks of it. The temple will be desecrated. This is the abomination of desolation. And Jesus says it's going to happen. And when you see it happen, Jesus gives very specific instruction. Do you know what his instruct instruction is? Run. Flee. 
Now, from reading the New Testament, it's not hard to see that hostility existed between Rome and the Jews. Tensions had been escalating for years. But in 66 AD, around six years after this book would have been written, a war began between Rome and the Jewish people. And, and Jerusalem became the last stronghold for the Jewish people. And this war lasted about four years. And during that time, thieves and zealots and criminals all came to Jerusalem for refuge because it was this last stronghold. And it is said that, that fighting was constant. Dead by, bodies were, were piled up in the streets and thrown over the city walls. Josephus, who was a Roman historian writing in about 75 A.D., he wrote that the noise of those that were fighting was incessant, both by day and by night. But the lamentations, the grief of those that mourned, exceeded the noise of the fighting. Not only was there, there fighting and lawlessness and all manner of evil, famines became severe. People were selling their children in order to buy food. People were eating from sewers. Eventually, Titus, the emperor's son, the Roman emperor's son, who was leading the attack on Jerusalem, he, eventually he surrounded the city and set the temple aflame. And by 70 AD, according to Josephus, more than 1.1 million people died during the siege. And in Josephus, he concluded this. He said, The afflictions which befell the Jews were the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but of those wherein cities have fought against cities or nations against nations. It appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to those of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. It's estimated that 90% of the Jewish population in Jerusalem was either killed or enslaved during the siege. 90%. Now certainly there have been more deaths at different points throughout the history of the world. You can think about the Holocaust or, or under Stalin's rule in Russia. But as D.A. Carson writes, never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. But do you know what a great many of Jesus' followers did in the midst of all this? They heeded Jesus' instruction. And they fled to the mountains. And they were preserved in the midst of this affliction. Now let's continue in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 22, and read, read verse 26. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Here it seems that, that Jesus turns again to address all the tribulation that is to come. So remember, he, I mean, he's, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives telling his, answering the disciples' question about when this is going to take place. And, and Jesus has this grand view of history that includes what the disciples are going to face in the destruction of Jerusalem. And he talks about, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Well, what days is 
what days is Jesus talking about? It seems likely that Jesus is, is referring to these days of affliction that begin with the birth pains, that include the destruction of the temple, but that extend out from there. But those days will be cut short. Thanks be to God. Jesus says all evil will be cut short. And so he returns to his original instruction. Do not go astray. Do not be deceived. This time he points more specifically to his second coming, and, he, and he's going to say that, that everybody's going to know. So there are going to be false saviors, false Christs that come and try to tell you, in verse 26 we just saw, oh, he's out there in the wilderness. Jesus says, don't go out. I'm not, I'm not out there, like just hiding behind a rock waiting to pop out and surprise somebody. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And then Jesus is saying, no, when I come, everyone will know. So look at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. And here Jesus presents this, this uh, really distillation of several Old Testament prophecies from Isaiah and from Ezekiel and from Daniel about this coming day of the Lord. Isaiah 13.10 says, The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light on that day. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. In Joel we read that the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The sun shall turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So Jesus wants it to be very clear that I'm not, it's not gonna, I'm not going to come subtly. Everybody will know I'm going to come majestically and it will be undeniable we don't have to wonder if we might miss it like oh we were talking last night with i was talking last night with uh, some of the middle school and high school students i mean like i mean what if i'm in the shower like w- will i miss jesus's return no you're not going to miss jesus's return everyone will know in verse 32 jesus gives this lesson this little parable from the fig tree learn its lesson As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So in in God's mind, how history works is there is his, after his ascension, there is his second coming. That's the next big event. It's going to happen. And as we'll hear next week, we don't know exactly when it's happened. But the conditions are always right for it to happen. But we don't have to wonder. All right, well, have we seen all these signs? We don't have to be doing all that. It's all distraction. Jesus wants us to know that we are to trust him and persevere and don't be deceived. 
So Jesus says, verse 34, Truly I say to you, this, this generation will not pass away until all these, all these things take place. So we've got to remember that context. And so he's, he's talking to the disciples, and they are going to see these things take place in their lifetime. Jesus is saying this around 30, 33 A.D., somewhere in there. The destruction of Jerusalem takes place 70 A.D. That's what Jesus is talking about here for them. This generation, and a generation generally referred to about 40 years. So Jesus is prophesying, telling them this is going to happen. Matthew's writing this prior to it happening. I mean, it's remarkable stuff. But this, listen to what Jesus is, where he gets to. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, in this teaching, in this text, there can be, there can be a lot of, of things that could be confusing or a lot of questions you might have. I think the most helpful thing that we can do as we come to this text is ask the question, so why, why did Jesus teach this? And Jesus makes it abundantly clear why he teaches it as he's instructing his disciples not to be deceived. And so what's the implication for us? What do we do with all this? We hear Jesus' warning. Do not be deceived. Jesus recognizes that when times are difficult, when hope wanes, one of our greatest temptations is to follow anyone or anything that might promise help. This was true of the first century. And Josephus actually, he also records stories of people being led astray by, by false False messiahs, false Christs. And it's no less true today. There are false Christs all around us. You see, we live in a world that thinks we can save ourselves. Uh, so maybe if we get enough electric cars on the road, we can save the planet. Or maybe if we end world hunger, we can establish peace. Or maybe if we fix the justice system. Or maybe if we stop abortion, we can obtain righteousness. But brothers and sisters, there's only one hope for salvation. There's only one Savior who brings with Him peace and righteousness, mercy and grace, justice and hope, and that's Jesus Christ. Every other hope, every other hope is a false hope. Every other hope is a false hope. A satanic limitation, a a satanic, satanic imitation, sorry, imitation of the true gospel. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He's our hope. He only is our hope. And so we take heart in the midst of affliction, in the midst of trials, in the midst of wars, in the midst of famines and earthquakes and whatever other natural disasters there are in various places. We don't fear. We don't need to be alarmed. God is on His throne, and Jesus is coming again. And we see in the fullness of time the love of God put on display in Jesus Christ, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is coming again. 
and every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim who He is. In this one man, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in Jesus, one thing that's taking place in Matthew is Jesus is showing Himself as He departs that temple that the glory of God is with Him. He is the true temple. He is the, the mediator, this meeting place before God and men. So come what may, whatever stories are out there, whatever hopes we might have, if they are not in Jesus Christ, they will all fail. They're all false. They're all trying to draw you away from our only hope for salvation. And that's in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that, that we have a great hope. We sang this earlier. What, a great hope that before us stands. Because He finishes all that He began. And eternal joy is in His hands in all of our tomorrows. Every one of our days He is numbered. And so we trust in Him and we look to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. A mediator between God and man, fully God and fully man, who took on Himself our sin, who carries our carried our our burdens and our grief, who died for us. And thank You that He rose again and ascended on high, and He will come again. And Lord, until that day, may we have eyes that are fixed on You. May we bear joyful witness to all that You have done for us in Him, to this indestructible hope that we have in Him. May we not be deceived. May we not be alarmed. May we persevere by Your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.